tales of history and imagination. The following is part 3 of the three part tale. If you haven't yet, check out parts 1 and 2, they'll be in the liner notes. As per the previous Munster episodes, content warning. We pick up our tale today in the company of Henry Gresbeck, the carpenter turned sentry. The date, Sunday, May 23rd, 1535. Gresbeck, like so many of the residents of New Zion, was a recent arrival. He had roots in the city. Going from his cover story to his employer, that his elderly mother was sick, so he was traveling to Munster to check in on her. But like many arrivals, he'd been captivated and then radicalized by the new religion. He showed up in Munster believing the revolution an epochal moment. What is clear is that as the siege wore on, Henry disavowed this earlier belief. Now so far, I've spent a lot of time on the dumb things both sides did in this conflict. Prophets lost their composure at a wedding because somebody else was the center of attention. This prompted said prophet to ride out to his death the following day. Drunken mercenaries mistook a sunset for a sunrise and died because of it. Replacement prophets ran naked through the streets yelling sinner at all in sundry, before being struck dumb, and so on. Now I don't want to play this like a comedy, that really isn't in my wheelhouse, but a comedy writer can make something out of the siege. I doubt the everyday citizens of New Zion would speak of the siege as comedic. A year in, I'd imagine most would tell you the siege was a litany of horrors. Every day for a year they were shell-shocked by the dull thud of the cannon fire. Most recently, as the Prince Bishop ring-fenced the city with a giant wall, they must have felt terribly isolated and vulnerable. Many Anabaptists came to the movement, for very different reasons to the megalomaniacal Jan of Leiden. Women, particularly, found freedom and empowerment in Anabaptism. Bernard Rothman's sermon, and Jan's subsequent order forcing girls as young as 11 into sexual slavery put paid to that. A number of women still refuse to say, I do, and currently remain locked up in prisons, where they were threatened with beheading. Speaking of beheadings, public executions were way up. Jan Matthias was dissuaded from killing all the Catholics and the Lutherans. But the execution started under him. They ramped up considerably under Jan of Leiden. Now the eccentric behavior of the prophet spooked a lot of people too. This element was what turned Gresbeck. In the beginning, these charismatic figures may have inspired wonder, but this far in, how could you not look at them as anything other than violent, unpredictable peacocks? And all that said, not all Anabaptists would have been overjoyed with the moves towards communal ownership. Everyone has some prized possession they prefer not to give up. And on the flip side to that, there was a strong proto-socialist element of the movement. And you have to ask, how many socialists would have approved of Jan of Leiden's pivot towards autocracy? There was now a two-tiered society where King Jan, 
and his 800 oligarchs lived the high life, while the rest of Munster starved. By Sunday, May 23, 1535, most of the city was racked by famine. Herman Kirsenbrook later wrote of the famine, Their flesh decomposed and rotted, their skin became livid, their lips withdrawn, their eyes, fixed and round, stared from the sockets. Kirsenbrook wrote of hundreds of deaths by famine, and of hastily dug mass graves, but not all bodies made it to the grave. In utter desperation, some citizens turned to cannibalism. Make no mistake, the everyday citizens of New Zion had sank into a deep despair. Jan responded only by giving his oligarchs a little pick-me-up. Among his court, he bestowed various dukedoms for all the lands he soon hoped to conquer. By April 1535, many of the starving demanded of King Jan that he surrender to the Prince Bishop. Rather than order a run of public executions, Jan told him to just leave. Hundreds of starving citizens left New Zion. On reaching the Prince Bishop's walls, orders were given to shoot all of the men. The women and children were then sent back out to no man's land, between the city and the wall. And this was the fate awaiting Henry Gresbeck. But for one fact, while guarding the city walls, he worked out how to sneak into Munster from outside. By May 23rd, Henry had gathered a crew around himself that included five other guards. They were all willing to risk certain death for a chance of escape. Around midnight, the crew snuck out from an innocuous door next to the Holy Cross Gate into the fog below. They dodged the other sentries, crossed the moat, and made directly for the blockhouse opposite. As they arrived, trumpets sounded, signalling a change of guard on the bishop's side. The others, including a man with a copy of the key to the Holy Cross door, nicknamed Hansel Eck, disappeared into the mist. Suddenly Gresbeck was all alone. Standing in a deep ditch in front of a blockhouse, he crouched low and waited for the sun to rise. At sunrise, Henry stood up, making himself known to the bishop's guards. Taken aback, they discussed whether they should kill or capture him. But when Gresbeck mentioned he'd been a guard directly across from them, and that he had a report of the goings-on in New Zion, the bishop's men brought him in. Henry was taken to Prince Bishop von Waldeck's generals, Count Ulrich von Dorn and Count Oberstein. The generals, still remembering the failed assassin, Heli Feiken, were initially wary of him. When Henry claimed he knew of a way into the city, he was taken to a prison cell, given a huge pile of mud and sand, and told to prepare a scale model of the secret route. Two days later, Henry Gresbeck demonstrated his path through no man's land. Days later, Henry was sent out into no man's land, in the dead of night, under guard to walk the bishop's men through the secret path. The day after that, Henry Gresbeck was granted his freedom. On release, he discovered Hansel Eck had made it too. And what's more, the guy was a plant, a spy in the employ of a bishop. 
As the Prince Bishop's army spent a month planning a third attack on Munster, we should briefly return to the city. As things got direr and a flood of refugees continued to take their chances in no man's land, the king prepared himself for a coming last stand. And around now, I should briefly speak of an invention that was popularized by a Czech general from about a century beforehand. I briefly mentioned Jan Hus in the first episode as a precursor to Martin Luther. Hus was publicly burned to death in Prague for his alleged heresy. One of his followers was a battle-hardened warrior named Jan Ziska. Ziska was a very capable fighter, but it was his battlefield innovations that he's now best known for. Gunpowder weapons had been increasingly common on battlefields in Asia for some time, leading to their spread into the Near and Middle East in the mid-13th century. But they were not at all common in Europe until Ziska popularized gunfighting in the early 15th century. Bringing guns to a sword fight had huge advantages, if only someone could find a way around the disadvantages. Early pistols and arquebus had a very short range and took a long time to load. A single shot would easily bring down a charging knight, but on open battlefields the knight was usually too quick for the gunman. So besides popularizing guns, Ziska popularized the Wagenberg, a portable horse-drawn fortress that could carry and protect several gunmen at a time. When these war wagons were used against the Teutonic Knights in the Hussite Wars, Ziska's men cut through the numerically superior opponents time after time. Before Henry Grays turned against King Jan, he suggested the king build some wagonbergs. Sixteen of these tank precursors, each large enough to accommodate a cannon and several gunmen, were parked in the market square. By our time in the tale, however, they were static fortresses. All of the horses needed to move them had been eaten by now. As our D-Day grew nearer, refugees continued to flood out of Munster. By now, an estimated 1,500 citizens had walked through the gates and begged the Prince Bishop for forgiveness. Of those, around 700 refugees were men. The Prince Bishop continued to order the men executed. On the other side of the gate, King Jan's tenth wife, Elizabeth Wanshear, looked at the growing piles of decaying men and begged her husband to end all of this now. Elizabeth, a young woman twice forcibly married, who felt her second husband akin to a smelly old goat, had been brought before the king in the hopes he'd command her to have sex with the old goat. But she was fierce and unrepentant, and Jan fell in love with her. So he decided to keep her for himself. That day, he did not take his wife's criticisms well at all, and had her publicly executed. Popular legend has King Jan then leading a merry dance around her headless body, which, I don't know, there's no evidence as to where the story even came from. Although we all agree he was mad enough that this is plausible. On June 22nd, under the cover of a heavy thunderstorm, 400 soldiers prepared to breach the city walls. 
Portable bridges were prepared to cross the moat. Siege ladders were brought out and dusted off. At 11pm, an advanced group of 35 men made for the gate. They snuck quietly past the bunkers, finding the sentries asleep. The sentries were run through by the soldiers' daggers. They then made their way for the unassuming door. Once in, they passed along a tunnel that led to the gate tower. Word was sent back to tell the other men to quickly join them. Soon the entire advance guard of 400 were inside the city. Outside, the bishop's general, Von Dorn, waited with the remaining 3,000 men. They were to wait for confirmation the advance guard had breached the armory at the cathedral, then breached the main gates. Inside, the advance group, led by one Wilhelm Steeding, were nearly at the cathedral when a war trumpet sounded, and a large group of Anabaptists squared up against them. The larger group ran at them under the cover of cannon fire, forcing Steeding to take the narrower streets away from the cathedral. In the confined spaces, the Anabaptists' numerical advantage would fade. They slowly backed up, hoping Von Dorn would hear the ruckus and order the main force in. Von Dorn was hesitant, and Steeding and his advance troop were now trapped down a blind alley. On the ground, the king's men fired at them. From on high, people in the houses threw whatever was handy at them. Both sides fired out into the inky darkness, until Steeding's men burst through the front door of one of the houses. Steeding took a large contingent of men through the house, out the back door, and around until they were flanking the king's men. In the dark, the Anabaptists believed these men had to be recently arrived main force, so they legged it to safety. The Steeding prepared to find a better, more defensible position. A voice pealed out through the night. It was King Jan. He would call for a ceasefire. The soldiers could leave New Zion. But first, they must individually kneel before him and beg his forgiveness. Steeding shouted back he first needed to check on his wounded. Steeding's aide, a young man named Johann van Twickel, was covertly dispatched to get von Dorn's attention. A tense conversation dragged on between the king and mercenary. In pitch darkness, until a third voice suddenly rang from Jodenfeld Gate. Von Twickel called on the main force to charge, falsely claiming they had taken the city. The army flooded in. For some hours, the fighting was fierce. The Cyclops, Thiele Bussenmeister, infamously fought a long defence on a bridge, much like that of a lone berserker at Stamford Bridge. Ultimately, he fared much the same as the lone berserker. As the battle raged on, for the first time, it went the bishop's way. A group of around 200 men did plan to make a final stand inside the Wagenbergs. Under the command of King Jan's Chancellor, Hermann Kretsching, the men could have held out for a day or longer, but they were clearly tired and just wanted to live. Perhaps surprisingly, Wilhelm Steeding offered the men their freedom they only put down their guns, left the Wagenbergs, 
and walked out the main gate. The men all took him up on that offer. Around two dozen men, under escort, were immediately led out of the city. The others returned to their homes, only to be slaughtered in the battle later on. Those men might have been safe under other circumstances, but the mercenaries had signed up for a wage and a bonus to be taken from the city's treasury once Munster fell. When the mercenaries finally got to the treasury, they found it empty. Furious over this, they took their anger out on the people of Munster. However, a small number of high-ranking men were brought in alive. They included King Jan. Bernard Rothman was presumed deceased, although his body was never found. Bernard Nippodolling was later revealed to be hiding in an attic on New Bridge Street, having made himself an unwelcome houseguest of the occupants. Most of the 3,000 or so women of Munster were allowed to recant their Anabaptism and promised never to rebel again, and were then set free. Some women, like King Jan's wife, Queen Divara, refused the offer and were beheaded. Most left the city, never to return. Which leads us to the final chapter in this tale. It'll be a short one. Prince Bishop Franz von Waldeck entered the city a week after it fell, on June 29th. King Jan was brought to him in chains. His clothes were dirty and little more than rags, and he personally looked much the worse for wear. The bishop scornfully looked him up and down and asked, are you a king? Jan responded by doing the same. Are you a bishop? This mutual antagonism was still there in spades when the two met a month later. That day, looking for a fight, the bishop entered the dungeon and boomed at Jan, something to the effect of, Do you know how much money it costs me to crush your kingdom? Jan replied, Von Waldeck should build an iron cage put him and Bernard Nippodolling in there, and tore the men around Germany. If the bishop charged a penny to the general public to view the evil heretics, he'd earn much more back than the entire war had cost him. The Prince Bishop built not one, but three cages. On January 22nd, 1536, Jan of Leiden, Bernard Nippodolling, and Bernard Kretching the brother of Wagenberg commander Hermann Kretching, were led out into the market square. A crowd had gathered. One presumes mostly of remaining soldiers, dignitaries, and perhaps a few Catholics and Lutherans who were exiled by the original prophet. A large platform had been constructed out of three of the Wagenbergs. The men were then chained to posts, and tortured to death by red-hot tongs. After an hour of unrelenting, excruciating torture, of reviving the men multiple times when they fainted from the pain, a dagger was thrust through each of their hearts. Some eyewitnesses were said to have found the entertainment a joy to watch. Others were thoroughly sickened by it. Today, if you visit Munster, and make your way to the market square and look around 200 feet up at the outside of St. Lambert's Church, just above the clock tower. There are three iron cages. They've been up there for close to 500 years now.
Though emblematic of the Prince Bishop's rage, they also served a practical purpose. For now, the Anabaptist threat was put down, its leaders executed. But ideas are much harder to kill. Ideologies survive in low whispers in a noisy pub, in secret church ceremonies held in basements, and through anonymous pamphlets. They pass on in the tales parents tell their children as they put them to bed at night. Authorities may pursue idea peddlers as much as they like, but to do so is to always be on the back foot. What they can do though, for good or bad, is attempt to scare the living daylights out of believers. So much so that they choose never to act on those ideas. The bodies of the three men were locked inside the cages, then hoisted up the church walls. The cages were secured in place. For 50 years, the bodies of the three men were left in those cages to decay, to lay with nothing more than three collections of bleached bones. After the bones were discreetly done away with, the cages were left as a constant reminder not to follow in the footsteps of the prophets. Did their example lead as a deterrent to others? Well, I have no doubt this is a topic we'll return to in the future. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. and Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.